Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. I'm your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 53. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like, did Ramona Flowers look better with pink hair or blue hair? Is Open Water the best found footage movie of all time? And is Christopher Nolan the Phil Jackson of directors? No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observations. So yesterday, I'm walking the dogs, and I'm listening to the Big Picture podcast because I am a ringer addict who, if you don't know, the ringer's uh, created and run by Bill Simmons, and he's my lord and savior as a content creator. Also, he's from Boston, also a giant Red Sox fan, Patriots fan, pop culture, TV, movie freak. He's basically, if I had to create someone in media, he would be him. He's, I mean, he's my Jesus, basically. I could listen to him read a sixth grade algebra textbook in Mandarin, and I'd be just enthralled. And anyone in his crew of people, all his podcasters, are minted as, you know, Greek gods for me. So you, you got like Chris Ryan, you got Sean Fennessy. You got Amanda Dobbins, Van Lathan, Jamel Hill, Jason Concepcion, uh, Shea Serrano, Wesley Morris, Juliet Lippman, Ryan Rossillo. They're kind of the amalgam of everything I enjoy listening to in the sports and pop culture world. So they released a 10-year anniversary Scott Pilgrim vs. the World hour-and-a-half podcast with Sean, Jason, and Van. And this is mere weeks after I did a cast about the movie. So I nearly collapsed with excitement. One, I mean, they're doing something that I'm doing, and I I beat them to it. How cool is that? And two, I mean, this is a movie that I just adore, and I get to hear, you know, my heroes talk about it. Because I'm a simple guy. So like I said, these guys are my creative supermen. And when they gush about cult movies I obsess over, that's just the apex for me. I get a goofy grin on my face, and I don't stop smiling until the pot is over. And usually that's more than enough. For me, you know, that's like, whoo, that was a good day, you know, heard a good pod. But this one specific pod had something I'd never experienced before. So the gang is going over, you know, best scene, uh, how it was filmed, Edgar Wright's film career, all the actors involved, how they were up and comers. And this was kind of before they all had their big break and how big a cast it was. And then finally, they get to best quote. And my mind instantly latches onto the super obscure Chris Evans quote. So in this movie, he plays an actor, an action star, and they show a grainy preview of the, this movie he made for the TV network Spike, and he's wearing all leather. He has this gloriously awful uh, chin-strap beard and this perfect Wolverine-style gravelly anti-hero voice. You know, he talks like this. You know, it's just like, oh, my God. I mean, Chris Evans should have been, should have played this character at some point in his life, just that kind of anti-hero, doesn't give an F kind of guy. And the character's name is Lucas Lee. He's one of seven of the evil ex-boyfriends Scott Pilgrim has to defeat in this 90s arcade game style kind of uh, semi-real world to win Ramona Flowers' heart. It's crazy. It's a weird movie, but it's awesome. So anyways, in this preview, Lucas walks into a phone booth. Now, the phone booth is in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing around it. There's shattered glass all around it. He only dials three numbers on the phone. He dials 555 for the butt of a gun. And you don't hear anyone pick up or even a dial tone. Yet he's growling to someone on the other end of the line. He goes, 
Now you listen close and you listen hard, bucko. The next click you hear is me hanging up. The one after that is me pulling the trigger. And he hangs up and using the and he hangs up using the butt of the phone, and that's the end of the commercial. It's my favorite 13 seconds of a movie ever. It's equal parts hilarious and something you would actually watch if it existed outside of this Scott Pilgrim world. And it never gets brought up. I haven't heard it in conver- I haven't had a conversation about it since I saw the movie. And I mean, I've seen it multiple times, but this is the first time I saw the movie. But then off the top rope, Jason Concepcion, my new you know hero out of all my heroes, comes in and does a 30 second to one minute breakdown of that very scene. And he cites it as his favorite quote from the movie. So listen, I don't have kids. I have yet to be married. And I don't think I'll ever win a Super Bowl. I'm a little past my prime in that and I, I can't throw. But I can't fathom a better feeling than having one of your podcast heroes deep cut shout out your favorite obscure line from an obscure cult movie. I mean, I gave the Tiger Woods fist pump. I jumped up and down in that awkward white guy. I can't dance. So this is my celebration kind of way. And it made my day. It made my week. It made my month. It made my year. Life complete. I can just die now. (laughs) So... I just had to share that experience with you all. I just hope you have moments in your life that equal that level of unencumbered, unfiltered joy. Whew. Yeah, I'm getting lightheaded just thinking about it. I just need to share it with everyone. Does anyone else get that feeling when someone you really admire uh, just shares a deep cut on some kind of pop culture, movie, TV thing, and you just feel, I don't know, it's like the serotonin in my brain just all went wee and just got released. And I just, you know, got a brain rush. All right, but on to today's topic. So last night I finally finished season three of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And it's a show on such a large scale, production-wise, script density-wise, historical accuracy-wise. I was kind of daunted by the task of summarizing my feelings on this monumentous Amazon Prime show. And it's like an hour long per episode. It's one of those shows they take all the time. I mean, the show looks like it costs a billion dollars. And, you know, I was a little daunted, a little little intimidated. But in times of doubt, I asked myself the same question over and over. How do you consume a whale? And the answer is one bite at a time. So Miss Maisel, challenge accepted. Let's let's do this. You know, I mean, at worst, if I can't finish, I'll get, I'll make another three podcasts. I'll make this a four-parter or something. So the show starts in 1959, Upper West Side, New York. Follows Jewish mother of two, Mitch Maisel. And she's stunningly beautiful. She's hilariously quick-witted. She's spoiled rotten from an early age, but she's self-aware about it. Like she's a, you know, she's a Jew from the Upper East Side and she just knows, I mean, she loves dresses. She loves, you know, girly things, but, you know, she speaks her mind and she's very, uh, she's very kind of uh, confident and female empowered, but in a girly way too. I mean, she's got the best of both sides. She's never worked a day in her life though. And she's kind of one of those never ending social butterflies who is always juggling 38 things. Like she's trying to convince the rabbi to come over for dinner on Sunday and that's a big deal. Her and her mom are planning social events. Uh, she's like helping her husband, trying to achieve his dreams at work. She's just, she's a force of nature. And she's, a, she's kind of a captain of a ship. She's an alpha to the extreme. And she always gets what she wants, but she does it with kind of a flirtatious kind of humor and wit. So you don't feel like she's taking you for a ride. It feels like, you, it's like you know you're being conned by her, but you're charmed, so charmed and just uh, blushing from you know, existing next to her that it's okay. So the show begins with her husband, Joel, cheating on her. Boo, Joel, you're stupid. She was perfect. But, and, she, and Joel 
blows up their marriage. I mean, but he has an affair with a secretary and she spirals, obviously, you know, I mean, life's kind of crushed and she finds an outlet outlet in stand up comedy where, you know, she has a sharp tongue, crass humor and general likability. And it just shines. It's just clear. She's just really talented. It's not like she's just saying canned jokes. She's just getting up there and riffing about her life. And she's just that funny. And that's a rarity, you know, that you can just improv on a stand up set and just be the brightest star out of everybody. So she gets the attention of one of the club's managers, a small, angry woman. And by small, I mean like four foot nine. She is just tiny. She looks like she got hit in the head with an anvil. She shrank like six inches. You know what I mean? Like not unnaturally short. Her name's Susie Myerson. And she's played by the same woman who does the voice of Lois Griffin. So she kind of has that comedic kind of high pitched voice. If you've seen the show and She's seen it all, you know, working in the club, and she knows Mitch can be a star. And it's pretty apparent to us, too. So the show's foundation is based on Midge's rise in the comedy circuit in, as the 1960s began. But the show is unique because it focuses equal energy on the seemingly endless barrage of other characters in the movie, in the show. You got Midge's father, Abe, who's just this cranky Columbia math professor. He's a neurotic worrywart. Uh, but he's also kind of, he was a communist kind of revolutionary in his younger days. And that kind of comes to bear at some points. And I think cause Midge has a new life path. She kind of influences everyone else to kind of break from what they were and try new things. And I think Abe is probably the biggest example of that as he gets into new jobs, new locations. Uh, you know, I, I won't ruin it for everybody, but it's like, she kind of sparks something in everyone else. And she, her mom is Rose who's this overbearing, hypercritical, social Jewish kind of dynamo and kind of just uh, almost like a dragon lady. She's very intimidating. She's like a force of nature, like a magnetic force to her. And you can tell even even Midge is pretty intimidated by her. And Midge isn't intimidated by her much. And she has a father-in-law whose name is Moish, played by uh, Kevin Pollack. Shout out, usual suspects. And kind of this loud, classless owner of a garment factory. And he's probably the most Jewish stereotype, I think, in the entire thing. But, I mean, stereotypes come from somewhere. So, I mean, it's not like a bad stereotype. It's just he's, you know, loud, hardworking, likes to get up at four in the morning. He likes to ex- exclaim whatever is on his on his mind, but loudly. And you even get to kind of find out who Joel is, too. I mean, no, normal shows, you would just be like, boo, I hate Joel. He's terrible. How could you ruin Midge's life? But eventually you kind of understand him and you like him as a human being who is flawed as the rest of us. I mean, you get to, you get some moments with Joel too. It's crazy. Now the show is so rapid fire on the jokes. It's crazy. It's almost dizzying. You almost feel drunk by the end of it. There's just crazy wordplay and it's created by Amy Sherman Palladino who did gossip girls and it shows here. I mean, she has this Broadway version of Aaron Sorkin scripting shows. So it's just like, everyone has a punchline uh, I mean, everyone's this, this smart, confident character who can effortlessly explain their exact emotion in the present. It's almost a superhero, superhero uh, kind of vibe to it in, in the way that they talk with each other. Because, I mean, don't you, when you have a situation and you want to express yourself, but you kind of get nervous and you hide it to yourself. And then in the shower, an hour later, you come up with a perfect kind of comeback or you come up with a perfect line that you should have said. They say that on the spot. It's almost like a dream come true. And Every single, every single character has that power. It's crazy. You know what I mean? Like this is a alternate reality where the brain to mouth barrier is, there's no barrier. You don't stop. If you got something clever in your head, you're going to say it. So, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. And the script's amazing. The sets 
on this on this show are like nothing I've ever seen on television before. They're historically accurate in the grand in the grand like bigger scale stuff and in the granular small details. I mean, she performed in front of a thousand person uh, USO crowd, you know, like like Bob Newhart's kind of or Bob Hope's uh, army performances, and they actually have like a thousand uh, soldiers and you know classic nineteen sixties soldier outfits, and there's like real like B-24 bombers and they're in like a, you know, warehouse hangar and there's old school 1960s Jeeps and the American flags look a little bit old school and the glassware and the, I mean, every, everything down to a T, even like the cutlery just looks like the 1960s. It's insane. And they'll do these single tracking shots through like block after block of New York city streets with hundreds of extras perfectly clad in 1960s garb. And even the apartment they live in, in to begin in the show is a classic six which if you don't know, a classic sick means it has six rooms. And it's just, you know, the most desired kind of apartment. It's a dream apartment for most people in New York. And it's on the Upper West Side. And everything from the suits of the men to the glassware, to the food, to the alcohol bottles, to the furniture is just this high-end 1960s art deco perfection. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can watch a show on mute and you could just marvel at the color palettes and this just spastic attention to detail. I remember there's one scene where they're in the garment district with Moish and they're showing him kind of walking through and doing inspections. And it seems like every garment they're working on, including the sewing kits and everything and what they're wearing down to their shoes, everything just seems historically accurate. And I can't imagine the time and effort that went, went into like creating this world. So, um, I mean, it's just so appreciated. And they take the decadence everywhere they go. It's not just New York, which is, I mean, you think New York City would be hard enough to create on a granular and like giant scale, but no, they're like, hey, let's try other places too. So, I mean, they go to Vegas for three or four episodes and they show it in all its neon glory. And I mean, just even the casino rooms look all historically accurate. I don't know where they did this. You know, the dinner rooms where they're performing, the microphones, just everything. It's unbelievable. There's a season where half the season they went to the Catskills, which is basically Jew vacation paradise in New York. And they went there for half a season and, you know, it's on the water. It's very kind of, you know, beachy and they nailed that to a T there's, they went to, they actually went to Paris and did a few episodes in Paris and just this. And also they did a few episodes in Miami and showed the swankiness of the hotels, like the La Fountain Blue, which is the nicest hotel in Miami. They actually filmed there. And just it's just, I mean, the amount of perfection that they put into the background, the landscaping, and just the small details, I mean, just hats off. I want to shake whoever's hand did all this. Because, I mean, it's got to be a team of like 500 people. I don't know how they did this. I mean, this show is just a thousand foot tall Chanel clad gorilla. It's opulence on a level I've never seen before. It's just like you're looking up and you're like, my God, that gorilla's wearing the two C's and the two C's are the size of the Empire State Building. Crazy. It feels like Game of Thrones budget for a comedic Broadway version of Mad Men. That's the best way I could put it. I mean, I, I really want to, I searched, scoured the internet, couldn't find anything on the numbers. It's got to be, I don't know, a couple million an episode at least. I mean, come on. It's just such, there's such energy and vibrance to it. And it all starts, I mean, that stuff's great, but it doesn't work if Midge and her comedy aren't, you know, hilarious and you want to believe in her and you want to travel with her and you want her to make it and you think she can make it. So she's based off of uh, Joan Rivers and she's probably the most dynamic female character I've ever seen on screen. She's just loud and abrasive with these verbal punches, 
but she kind of has this velvet glove vibe to them too, where her charisma and beauty uh, kind of soften the blow and she can kind of get into people's heads. It's this jarring contrast. And she's on stage, she's spouting about sex, she's swearing like a sailor, she's riffing on divorce and family pains. And she does it in such this such a clever, sped up, almost, you know, when you hit the podcast times two kind of thing, uh, self-aware tone that she can basically say anything and it'll get a laugh. I mean, her tonality is just unbelievable. I could listen. I wish she had a podcast. I wish there was a podcast of just her comedy sets. Maybe there is. Maybe I'm sure Spotify, Spotify is pretty legit. I'll check it out. So I mean, Midge hits home with me. And this might be on a personal reason at this point in my life, too, because we're both upper middle class Jews who are useless in the harsh realities of the day-to-day life, but we kind of thrive in our bubble worlds that we've created for ourselves. And we both have, we both have had an out of, out of our control shakeup to our comfortable existences. She got cheated on and her marriage blew up. Pandemic happened and, you know, the bar I worked at shut down. And as a result, we both tried to jump feet first into the world of entertainment. Yeah. Her with comedy, me with podcasting. We both had a microphone though. Both works. It applies. It applies. And I think we're both like naturally gifted, but raw and unexperienced. So it's kind of, let's see if we can make it. So I feel connected to Midge. She's kind of my roadmap for stomping through failures until victory has no option, but to cower before my very funny feet, like it cowers for her. So shout out Midge. You know what I mean? She's just, she's my spirit animal. I just, I believe in her and she's my proxy. I see, I was like, okay, someone Jewish and, you know, inexperienced, mid thirties is gonna try something in entertainment. I was like, I can do that. <laughs> and the show is not just comedy. It uh, delves deeply into the dramatic too and has truly poignant moments about female empowerment, the harsh realities of discrimination in the 1960s. She becomes the opening act for a big kind of 60s doo-wop crooner named Shy Baldwin in the show. And they talk about how his, he can't stay at those same hotels that she can stay at, that, I mean, the band is making less, uh, how she gets put above more talented comedians due to her race at the time. And also they focus on how important marriage and children were seen in the past generations, how like, you know, forced marriages, why aren't you married yet? You know, where are my grandkids? And kind of the shadow of shame that came with divorce or working as a woman at the time was. It's, it's pretty, I don't know, it seems, seems realistic in that sense. It seems like it, felt, it feels lived in. And it, briefly, it also briefly touches on political issues of the time from anti-Semitic uh, politicians to how the mob had ties in New York City and Las Vegas. And these brief glimpses into these kind of other worlds are just really fun. And I mean, they even go into like Soho and the beatnik art artist world of the lower class areas of the city. And there's actually one scene in season two where she's talking to this great tortured drunk painter who's kind of this Hemingway Pollock kind of vibe. And he's showing her his master work that he shows no one. And they're talking about it and talking about art and how you know creativity inspires them both. But they're not showing the painting the entire time. It's a massive painting. It's got to be 12 feet by 10 feet. And you know, they finally look at it and they just kind of marvel in the same way. And he's, you know, he thinks he's never going to do anything else like it. That's why he's such a drunk mess because he created his masterpiece. Now what? And she's just taken aback by it because she's, no one's ever seen it. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's perfect that they don't show the painting the entire time because it just lets your imagination run wild. Like, what could it be? And it's just like small flourishes like that and just make the show just, just fantastic. And Midge is such a fun avatar for the audience because she has this fearlessness in talking to anyone about anything at any time. 
She's just generally curious. She's intelligent and she has zero brain to mouth filter. So she tends to get all these different types of characters to open up to her. Just like the artist, you know, I mean, he would, wouldn't show anyone that painting and, you know, some reason because of her honesty and kind of, and also because she's good looking, I think that gets her foot in the door a little bit <laughs> that she gets, she gets to go places normal people don't go and gets to experience the true core of the people she meets, which is really interesting. And it makes the show unpredictable in its plotting and character arcs too. You never really know where it's going to go or how it's going to go. Some episodes crush you, some that you thought were going to end positively, and then some episodes you think are going to end on an upswing and you just get demolished. So you never know. It's unpredictable. And it's incredible no matter how over the top and well-written the show is, there's this core feeling that this was the scene in the 1960s New York. And it made sense because Paula Dino, the creator, her dad did stand up in the 50s and 60s and she'd hear late night conversations between him and comedy legends like Bob Newhart and Lenny Bruce. So she grew up in this, you know I mean? This is her life. So it was pretty easy, I think, for her to transfer. I mean, I'm not sure it was easy, but it, was, it felt natural that she transferred to the show. So it's this bounce between fantasy and fact that makes the show so intoxicating. It's taking, you know, the real world of it and just amplifying it and coloring it up and just neon pastel coloring it and fancying it up. I just, I, I adore it. I mean, I'm just ranting at this point. <laughs> so on the other end of the spectrum, besides that, uh, Midge wears this kind of, I mean, on the other end of the spectrum of, uh, rather than the, rather than the dialogue, I'm talking about the clothing on the show. Midge kind of wears this New York City royalty level outfits that are never the same. She never wears the same thing twice. She kind of feels like 1960s Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City-esque in regards to fashion. And she purposely wears pink uh, the most to depict the rose-colored glasses she sees the world with. She sees the world with. Like, how great is that? Just that little kind of, you know, that little detail just makes it. Because it, it does show, like, optimism, even in the face of, you know, being rejected and, you know, having trouble in the world. And they base her look on Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn. And it gives her that timeless look that adds kind of an unspoken cultural resonance to Midge. She just seems like an icon already. And on top of all this, there, there's a movie in this show about the friendship of uh, Midge and Susie. So Susie's this hard scrabble, plumber looking, you know, low class, lives in a basement apartment, you know, no bed, I mean, no bed all that kind of stuff and high end Midge and that they're grinding the comedy circuit together as a team and trying to make their dream become a reality together. That's just really cool. It's just their, their loyalty and determination together in these impossible odds. You know, I mean, women in this field, you know, I don't think, I don't think you see, I think you see maybe one or two other women comedians the entire three seasons. And it just makes, it makes you feel inspired and their contrast and appearance and outlook also makes for a really kind of hilarious banter between the two of them. You know, Susie kind of, I mean, everyone thinks she looks like a man and she sounds like a man and Midge is just this, you know, pinup doll. And I just, I just love that, you know, watching that is really fun. So like I said, the show is an endless joy in 15 different levels. I feel like I could do another full life pod on this gem and not hit any of the topics I just ran through. So maybe I will. And I'll, I'll make this a three or four part series down the road. But for now, it's time for me to put on my 1960s pink dress and eat brisket with my family. So shalom.